Good morning, Southlands. How you guys doing? Wonderful. Happy Mother's Day to all of the moms and the grandmas in the room. We're so thankful for you. Um, we would not be a whole community without your love and investment. And so what a great day to focus and talk about that. Um, I am one of 11 pastors here at Southlands Brea, and five of us are paid on staff, and six of us are what we call marketplace pastors or elders. And that means that we serve here. It's our privilege to be elders in the community, but we draw our salary and uh, we work in the marketplace. And so my job actually is not uh, here at Southlands Church. It is as the regional director for an organization called Foster the City. And today, we are kind of kicking off Foster Care Awareness Month in the month of May. And Alan has asked me to preach today, not just as a pastor in the community, but as a representative uh, for Foster the City. And so I am going to unapologetically be talking about foster care today. And there are some very clear similarities between Mother's Day and um, foster care, but there also are some differences. So the similarities would be that moms, more than anyone, know how to sacrificially love another person. And that love takes courage, and I think that's an undervalued aspect of mothering, is just the courage it takes to step into people's pain and to care for them. Now, what's dissimilar is this kind of cultural expectation that Mother's Day is a bit flowery and it's kind of a nice encouragement and nice pat on the back, but we're gonna be talking about a bit of a heavy and difficult topic today. And we're going to be reading through a, a text that's really gonna challenge us and to help us look inward and ask some, some big questions. And so I, I pray that you just bear with me as we manage that tension of those similarities and those differences on uh, this Mother's Day. So Foster the City, just give you a high-level summary, it's a coalition of 192 churches who have linked arms to find a home for every child in the foster care system. And our strategy is to inspire and equip the local church with a theological vision, meaning it's sourced from scripture, vision meaning they can see themselves doing it, uh, participating, loving, caring on children and youth in the foster care system. And um, our strategy, if we go to that first slide, is really to, um, from the local church, which is there on the left, um, and then in the middle, you have a fostering family. So that would be like Stephen Lauren Wetzel, um, who is here somewhere, and my wife right here, Stacy and I, um, and others who have done this in the past. We are the foster parents. And then around us is our support friends. And those are people who bring meals and pray for our kids regularly and really kind of uphold the responsibilities of making sure kids feel safe and loved when they're in this community who come from hard places. And so over the years, Foster the City, churches have raised up 297 foster parents. Isn't that amazing? 297 family units, single moms or couples who put their hand up and say, yes, I wanna welcome these amazing kids into our home. And those families have welcomed in a total of 477 children from the foster care system. That's just amazing to me. It really is. And so um, 
none of that can happen without the local advocate who leads the ministry at each church. And so I just wanna take a moment to honor and thank Shelly, who's our advocate here, if we could give it up for her. Shelly Young's on our deacon team. She's doing a phenomenal job, but she would like some help. She'd like some partners in the gospel here. Uh, advocate teams really, we hope for around two to three people who are working together to lead this ministry here. And so if you are interested in being an advocate, we have a table out in the lobby. Please, please, please come talk to us. You don't need to have a foster care background. You just need to be faithful, available, and teachable in some way to kind of help us um, move, uh, uh, lead this ministry here at Southlands Church. Um, so as we start, what is the context of foster care in Orange County? You know, Orange County is a pretty wealthy county, relatively speaking, and a lot of our poverty and our need is hidden. It's out of our sight. And sometimes that's really orchestrated by city officials who remove poverty from the city or intentionally hide poverty from the city. So it feels like it's a nicer place to live than it actually is. And that certainly is the case for children and youth in the foster care system. We have 3,000 children and youth in the foster care system here in our own backyard, 3,000. I mean, I, I wish we could just line these beautiful faces up one, two, three, four, five, all the way up to 3,000 children who are in need of a supportive fostering family who can really help this mom or this grandparent or this family reunify and heal after a season of being fractured or second case scenario is open up their home uh, to be a forever family if, if that's what the child needs. And um, there's just such a, a profound need in every county in Southern California, there is a list of actual kids who have no home. And even in Orange County, one of our Foster the City families was recently certified a few weeks ago. And the day after they were certified, they got a call from a placement worker saying, hey, I know that you said on your form, one kid in elementary school, but we have this sibling set. It's a three-year-old boy and a seven-year-old girl, and they have been here for months in the government kind of facility that manages and cares for them. We desperately need a home for these two amazing kids. And they need a little bit of extra love. The three-year-old, because his needs haven't been met in an ongoing way, he actually is still crawling, even at the age of three, because he hasn't had the love and support he needs to thrive. And the seven-year-old, she's amazing, but she's taken on the responsibility of an adult. And so she doesn't really have a childhood. She's not playing. She's not carefree. She has to be the mom of this sibling set. Would you consider opening up your home? And I tell you about those two kids because they are just one of dozens of children and youth who need a home in our own county. In fact, every year, 600 kids from the foster care system are shipped out to other parts of Southern California because there's no foster families to care for them. And so there is a significant need here in our own backyard for, yes, those who will step up to welcome those kids directly, but holistically for the church to see those kids and love them and make sure they know that God has not forgotten about them and God can be present with them. But how do we get to that place? How do we get to that place where there's no longer a waiting list of kids 
uh, in need of a family, but there's a waiting list of families ready for every kid that comes into the foster care system immediately. There's a home of Christians saying, we love you and we see you and you matter to God. More specifically, to bring it a little closer to home, what, what is God calling you to do today? Maybe you're not ready to open your home to a child in the foster care system, but maybe today is the beginning of a spark that God is gonna set in your heart that will grow later on to open your doors to some of these amazing children. And I really think that spark, that whole process starts with one question. And that question is, whose neighbor am I? Whose neighbor am I? So let's jump into our scripture for today. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up there. Uh, if not, we'll have the words on the screen. And um, I obviously need to start by saying, hi, mom, who's watching on the live stream from Northern California. Love you. I'm so thankful for you. And also by just thanking Stacy, who is a really amazing mom. And um, a really sacrificial mom. She has opened her home to nine children and youth in the foster care system over the last five years. And I'm just so amazed at how you continue to pour yourself out for these kids. And um, I shouldn't have done this the first part of the sermon. That's like, obviously, that anyone could have told me that. Um, but I, I really just want to honor you. You are an amazing woman of God, and your heart for children uh, is inspiring, and I'm privileged to be your sugar daddy. You know what I'm saying? There's probably a better way to say that, but that's just where we're at. It already happened. Okay. All right. Can we get this thing back on track? Nobody knows. Maybe the Bible can help. All right. Luke chapter 10. Um, some of you immediately will be familiar with this story, this parable, and I just want you as much as you can just to not jump to the end of the conclusion. You know, Jesus was a profound storyteller, and I feel so inadequate to tell stories like Christ. Um, but I'm gonna give it the best shot I can, and part of that is just by sitting in each moment and letting the story develop naturally. So as much as we can, let's fix our attention on what's happening right in front of us, and we'll read this short section of scripture in three chunks. Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up, uh, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you shall live. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for this chance to read your words. And I thank you for the countless mothers in our church who have lived out these words to love God and to love neighbor in beautiful ways. Would you bless them today, God? Would you meet with them today? And I pray, Lord, as we hear from your word and it inspires us and it challenges us and it calls us into more and it reminds us of the gospel, Lord, would our hearts just be open to everything that you have for us, regardless of what holiday it is. And so we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 
Amen. So I'm doing something a little bit unfair. I'm taking you and I'm throwing you in the middle of the Gospel of Luke. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what's happened. And so let me catch you up. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke has been writing about this person named Jesus, how his birth was miraculous, and specifically how he's come to uh, seek and save the lost, which is the theme verse throughout the whole Gospel of Luke. And we are at the beginning of the section where Jesus is journeying with his disciples to Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is the place where Jesus will lay down his life for the salvation of many. And in Luke chapter 10, roughly to uh, chapter 19, all of that good stuff in there is Jesus privately teaching his disciples. The first part of Luke has been a very public, miracle-working, large crowd ministry, and now he draws near his disciples, and his goal is to show them how they're to live in his absence. And Luke very skillfully starts this section off with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this section of scripture, theologians call it the gospel to the outcast. Because over and over, story after story, action after action, is Jesus moving towards people who are hurting and who has, society has deemed the nobodies. And Jesus moves towards them to honor them and to love them and to heal them. And so here's what happens. Jesus is walking along, teaching his disciples, and behold, you know, the narrator is kind of like, he appeared out of nowhere. There's a lawyer coming to test Jesus. Now, lawyer, ESV translation is not a great translation because we think of a courtroom prosecutor, but the Net Bible calls him an expert in religious law. And that's exactly what it is. He is a religious law expert. This guy had memorized the Jewish scriptures. He knew every facet and every argument. He'd be a leading theologian, a uh, uh, a well-known and respected teacher in a large region. I mean, this is the dude, okay? He knows his stuff and he's coming to test Jesus. That means he's not coming to learn, he's coming to school. You know what I'm saying? Like he's coming to show Jesus what's up. This reckless, outcasted wilderness rabbi who wasn't taught by anyone, doesn't honor the Sabbath, plays loose and fast with Jewish laws. He's gonna come to him and he's gonna test him. He's gonna show that Jesus doesn't know the law and I know the law. That I have it together and he doesn't. And so he thinks about how can I embarrass Jesus? Like what can I do to show that this guy's a fraud? And so he thinks about one of the most technical, difficult questions to answer in the Jewish mind in the first century. And that is how do you inherit eternal life? And we have similar difficulties because if you make it too much about the person, then they are the ones responsible for their own salvation. But if you don't require any fruit from salvation, then people can just live recklessly in cheap grace and not actually hold the gospel. And so there's these tension points. And so the rabbi thinks he's gonna embarrass Jesus. And so he asks them this question, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus brilliantly entices this man to answer his own question that he came to trap him with. He says, well, what's in the law? How do you read it? Jesus knew this was the type of guy who liked to talk, you know? The type of guy who liked the chance to share his opinion. Anybody know someone like that? And so he quickly responds, well, you love the Lord with all you got and you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, well done. You have read the law correctly. Go and do this. He says, you understand what it's like to inherit eternal life. 
It's a relationship. It's about love. It's about love for God who has saved you and moved towards you. And then it's about expressing that love in a sacrificial way for others. Amen, brother. Go be blessed and live it out. And at this point, the law expert's going, shoot, did I really fall for that? Are you serious? I spent so much time thinking of a question to trap Jesus, and then he got me to answer the very question I was trying to trap him with. I mean, the exchange is over. By all accounts, Jesus won, expert zero. I mean, this situation is over. But this expert in Jewish law is not letting the cards fall there. He wants to start up another game with Jesus. And so he quickly goes, well, uh, uh, well, who is my neighbor? <laughs> Let's see how he answers this one. You know, this is his second move to trick Jesus. But this time he's not trying to test him. Verse 29 says he's desiring to justify himself. He's desiring to justify himself. And so in, instead of saying, Jesus, you don't know the law, He's going, shoot, that didn't work. Now I need to show that, like, well, I already do what you've asked me to do. I do love my neighbor. I have fulfilled the law. So where's my eternal life? And so this question in his mind is to find a loophole for defining who his neighbor is. See, the Jewish rabbis of the day, they taught that neighbor meant people like you. They taught that people that you were at peace with. And so the message translation gets this right. It says, looking for a loophole, he asked, well, how do you define who my neighbor is? See, because the call to love your neighbor is enormous. It's not just love your neighbor. What does love mean? It's love your neighbor, what? Ooh, that one hurts, doesn't it? To the same degree that you love yourself, to the same degree that you secure food and water for your survival, you should secure food and water for others. To the same degree you protect yourself from harm, you should protect other people from harm. To the same degree that you seek out relational connection to be known and to be loved, you should love other people. And to the same degree that you seek peace and joy in your life, you should fight for that for others. And so the leading teachers of the day, they knew, man, this is going to cost us. So what they did is they defined neighbor in a small way. And Jesus addresses this directly in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, verse 43, Jesus says, you have heard it said, quoting the popular idea about the law. You shall love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. There's the loophole. My enemy is anyone I don't like. If you annoy me, you're my enemy. If you're of a different race than me, you're my enemy. If you're of a different socioeconomic status, you're my enemy. And so what the teachers of the day had done, it struck the circle of who is your neighbor so small that it was only people who were like you and people you liked. And so Jesus is gonna destroy that circle. <laughs> Jesus is going to show this man that that circle is way too small. And actually who your neighbor is, is a much greater call than you realize. So let's jump into verse 30 to see the first part of how Jesus answers this question of who is my neighbor. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
now by chance, a, a priest, he's going down the road and, and he sees him, but he passes by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and, and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Jesus starts to answer this question of who is my neighbor with a story, with a parable, with an illustration. And he does this by referencing a very well-known road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was up over this mountain pass. It was very narrow and it was very dangerous because there were all these caves and rocks and boulders. And so criminals and thieves, they could hide out behind the boulders and they could jump their unsuspecting victims quickly, steal their money and leave. And it wasn't a well-worn path unless there was a Jewish annual festival. And so people could be beat up and left there for dead, which happened regularly. And that is the case with this man. But Jesus gives the listener two significant glimmers of hope. And that's why we're just here. That's, stay with me here. This man is in critical condition. He is half dead. He has been thoroughly beat. He's bleeding. He's, he's coming in and out of consciousness. If nobody rescues this man, he will die. And the first glimmer of hope is a priest is coming. Church, this is good news. This is a man of God. This is a man who has made a, a covenant and a commitment. My role is to connect people down here to the God up there who loves. My job is to step in the gap to save people. That, that's what I do for a living. And better yet, this man knew the Bible inside and out. He would have known the words of Proverbs 21, 13, that whoever shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry and he himself not be heard. He knew the words of Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And most importantly, he would have known the words of Leviticus 19, 18 that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Surely this man of God will help, right? He sees him and he passes by on the other side. This man knew that God had called him to help, yet he did nothing. And worse than doing nothing, he put distance between himself and this man's suffering. He stepped out of the way. He looked the other way. And we, the listeners, were, were left feeling indignant, mad, angry, frustrated. How could you? What hypocrisy. You're a man of the cloth. You, you're a pastor. You're a priest. This is a fellow Jew. This is a brother. And he is dying. What about his kids? What about his wife? What about his mom? What about his family? How inhumane to see his suffering and look and go the other way. And not only him, but a Levite, a worker in the temple, whose job it was to prepare the way for people to come to God and be saved. Modern equivalent, someone on staff at a church. And he sees him and he looks the other way. And the Bible doesn't tell us why. The Bible doesn't tell us if it was because they didn't want to defile themselves. Because if this man was dead, then they couldn't go to the temple and they'd have to do all this purification and cleansing and it'd be annoying. 
Or maybe it was because they were just too busy. They had important affairs in Jerusalem. They were important men. They had to get to their posts. They had to get to the synagogue. They had to get to the temple. They had to speak. Or we don't know if they were just scared because this was a dangerous road and evidently there were bad men out here. And so if we stop to carry this man, maybe we too will fall under the same fate as the one half dead. We don't know why, but all we know is that they saw and they passed by. And I wonder if Luke has intentionally not told us their motivation so that you and I would pause for a minute and think about the own indifference in our hearts. So I think if we're honest, we have a little bit of the priest and the Levite in us. I remember in 2016, I got this really cool opportunity because of Alan's kindness to go to South Africa and to preach at these churches and to do ministry. And it was, it was a really great trip that my wife and I took. And part of the trip was going into the townships where there's people living in extreme poverty. And part of going to the developing world, this under-resourced place, is the discrepancy in poverty. It is just mind-blowing. It is just, I don't know if you guys have been to a third nation before, but it is just heartbreaking to see how this canyon between the wealthy and the poor is just even more exacerbated than here. And I remember serving in the townships and seeing suffering and seeing kids sleep in a cardboard box and seeing people live and sort through trash heaps to find food. And I just, I like, didn't know what to do. I was just overcome by it. And I just began to have these thoughts, man, if I lived here, I would do something. Like, where is the church? You know, the church that took me on that trip, <laughs> introduced me to the work they were all already doing. I didn't think about that. Just where is the church? And this self-righteousness began to creep up in me, and I just was praying to God, and I, it, was, it was partially good out of empathy, and it was definitely out of self-righteousness. If I lived here, Lord, I wouldn't not be doing something. I wouldn't be passive. Fast forward to the end of the trip. We land, and we're driving up the 57 freeway right after this trip, right after these thoughts. And I look out the window as I'm driving home and in the Santa Ana riverbed, there was this community of about 900 people in addiction and poverty and suffering and homelessness. And the Holy Spirit very gently just said, those people are here. Those people are here. What are you gonna do about it? And I was just faced with my own self-righteousness. I just began to tear up and I had this moment with the Lord. And I didn't know this passage very well, but I, I am that priest. I'm a pastor at this church. And there are times when I see people suffering and I'm too busy for them. I, I look the other way. I keep saving my money instead of giving more of it away, and I could give more of it away. There's this indifference in my heart, and I, I don't know where it comes from. I think it's just cultural expectations. We're, we're used to seeing suffering. We're used to going the other way. It's what everyone else does, or we do the minimal amount we can to feel good about ourselves. Just like a small little thing to kind of pacify that feeling inside. And church, this text is inviting us to stop and repent. Not because God's mad at you. Not because God's 
angry at you because you're his child. And like a good mom, he wants to form you into this beautiful image of what Jesus was like when he was here. When he stopped for people all the time to heal them and to pray for them and to give what he had and to connect with them. That's our call. That's our legacy. Church, that's our legacy. In the first century in Rome, there was this terrible law called infant exposure where if you were unhappy with the gender of your child or if they were born with a birth defect, you could go to this protected part of town. It was where the dump was and you could leave your child there and you could go back home. And it was a law that you could abandon your child if you did not want them. And thousands, some scholars say hundreds of thousands of children would die on these trash heaps. And it wasn't until the advent of the church that this group of women at night would get together and they'd pray late into the night and they'd wander the streets of Rome listening for the cries of children. And they'd pick them up and they'd take them home and they'd find families for them. Church, that's our legacy. Those were our people. Those were our sisters. Those were our brothers. And we have an opportunity to slow down and to listen to the cries of people who are suffering. And it's costly at times. It sucks. There's a cost to it, but there is a joy to following Jesus in a heart of compassion. As a foster dad, I've had the privilege of taking care of nine kids. And I have had so much joy from having these children in my home. I think of the current placement we have. We'll call her little L because I can't say her name publicly. We've had her for several months now. Many of you have seen us Sunday after Sunday pushing our double stroller. Today we came in with a single stroller because after months of pouring ourselves out and loving this beautiful girl, she is soon going to return home to her mom. And there's this complication there. On the one hand, I want her to be with her mom. I do. I can't imagine what her mom must have experienced the last 16 months not being able to hold her baby, trusting her to other caregivers. And so I'm excited for little L to go back home with her mom. But on the other hand, I am mourning. It was a privilege to be the one who got to meet her needs. when she'd cry out at night. I got to be the one to go in her room and hold her when she needed a snack. I got to go into the closet and get her her favorite snack, a fig bar from Sprouts. I don't know how many fig bars my kids have eaten, but it is, it is a large number. <laughs> and yet I just, I just think about the love that Christ has had for me that on the one hand, it broke his heart that humanity turned their back from him. 
And on the other hand, he knew that in order to save and rescue them, he would have to lay down his own life. Foster care is the gospel. It's loving without any promise of return. It's freely giving what you've been given, even though no one else has any human claim on it. And we are given a picture of two different responses to suffering in this passage. And I definitely need a tissue. Like, there's times where you can just power through, but the amount of snot in my nose right now is just unsettling. Oh, Morgan, thank, let's give it up for Morgan. Oh. I am so glad I'm not guest preaching at somebody else's church right now. Thank you guys for being a safe place to <laughs> let you in on a little bit of my emotions. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave the parable here with two individuals who pass by. He gives us this beautiful, profound example of compassion, of serving, of laying down your life as Christ has loved you. Picking up in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, that word pouring is lavish, lavishly pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two months worth of rent and he gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay it when I come back. Which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus doesn't say, you hypocrite. Who do you think you are? In South Africa, with all your self-righteousness, judging my church, who's on the front lines of caring for people? That's not the God that we serve. The God that we serve patiently teaches us and invites us to live the same life of compassion that he had. Have you experienced that? I've experienced that. Just the, the kind, corrective love of God that convicts you gently and invites you into more. That's the God that we serve, not the God who's slapping you on the wrist and telling you you're not doing enough. That's our old master. We've been crucified to him. He has no claim over us anymore. The God that we serve now is gentle and compassionate and, and like a father, just takes us along the road of loving people and, and shows us how to do it picks us up when we fall down and calls us out when we're too selfish. This paternal love that wants the best for us. And this good Samaritan so profoundly exemplifies that. And Samaritans and Jews, they were enemies, so he's actually helping his enemy. 
The two brothers in the faith walked by, but the enemy stopped and gave of himself sacrificially. The enemy had compassion on the man. The enemy gave of his own resources, his own oil and his own wine and his own donkey and his own money. The enemy bound up this man's wounds and healed him and cared for him. The enemy was present in this man's suffering. And church, that is exactly like the greatest Good Samaritan Christ, who while we were enemies of God, moved towards us in our pain and our suffering. While we were half dead in our sin and godlessness, Christ saved us. Yes, this passage is inspiration and challenge and motivation for us to care, but long before it's that is a picture of how God has loved us that we were the ones beat up on the side of the road with no hope. People passing by, unable to help us, but God intervened and lavishly poured out his own resources to save us. And as we confessed our sin and put our faith in Jesus, he regenerated us, he changed us, he made us new. He gave us new life and new purpose and new vision and said, come follow me in this journey of learning how to be a compassionate person. Jesus over and over affirms like this passage, it is about loving God and loving people. Rinse and repeat. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. That is the life of a Christian. It's falling more and more in love with the God who saved us and giving more and more to the people who are suffering because we've been filled up with God's love. So we have an abundance. We can serve in sacrificial ways because that's how God has loved us. Now, this is a sermon about foster care. And so unapologetically, I am going to ask you to pray and consider opening up your home to one of the over 600 kids who are sent out of county because no one is saying yes to them right now. But I'm also gonna ask you to pray to get involved in other just as significant but a little bit smaller ways, like being a support friend to wrap around a fostering family or to volunteer, to become a financial partner or to do your part to, to say, these are my kids in my backyard. And so this whole parable is about Jesus flipping the question. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, whose neighbor am I? Who is the beat up, half dead person that needs me? Physically beat up, spiritually beat up, emotionally beat up, societally beat up, I don't know. But the umbrella of this passage is, is really that you and I would pause for a minute and we'd first of all thank Christ for what he's given us. <laughs> he has given us so much. But then we would freshly evaluate, what do I have to give? I don't know your situation. I, I know that there are dozens of men and women in this church who sacrificially love others. I think of Dan and Annie Bach. Dan in his middle school classroom, constantly loving and praying for and seeing kids who go unseen. Annie, who is a social worker and actively tries to find homes for children and youth in the foster care system. I think of Joey and Hannah Munoz, who also attend Southlands, who's, who serve as Safe Families hosts. 
vulnerable families who are in a tough spot before their kid goes into foster care. They open up their home for weekend or week-long childcare opportunities where they can love on and connect with the kid while the mom finishes her teaching program or holds down three jobs or, or does the certification that she needs to. I think of Steve and Lauren Wetzel who foster children and have done an amazing job of pouring themselves out for kids who need a home. I think of John and Liz Vallejo that lead a camp for kids of children and youth who have parents who are incarcerated and for four days, they just love on them. And throughout the year, they're connecting with these families and resourcing them, many of whom have stories in the foster care system. I think of nurses in our church who don't just show up to work for a paycheck or to manage their patients, but they are praying for ways to minister the gospel. They're praying for ways to be compassionate. I think of Dave and Grace Vera who get the privilege of teaching kids how to play music. And they do it in a fun, playful way as they show compassion and pour out Christ's love for them. I could go on and on and on. This message is not Southland's do more at, by any means. This message is God has given us so much. How can we creatively come together to share it? Because as Mandy pointed out to me in between service, if you hoard what God has given you, it will go sour like the manna in the wilderness, if you just hoard it for yourself and build your own little kingdom, it will corrupt you. But if you freely give it away because Christ is given to you, you will be blessed and you will be full in the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much that you are the great Samaritan that you move towards us in our pain and our suffering. When we were half dead. God, thank you that it is a joy to have something to give. And it is a joy to give and to follow you into a life of compassion. And so Spirit, I pray right now that you would cement the things you're calling people to in the name of Jesus. That thought you're having right now, it is from God about who and how you should care for others. Cement it in the name of Jesus. Make it sure. Help them give people the courage and the bravery to act on the compassion that you've placed in their hearts, even and especially so that it costs us. And God, I just take the moment to pray for the 3,000 children and youth in the foster care system. Lord, please watch over them. Please protect them. Please call churches all across Southern California to raise up fostering families, God, so these kids can have a home. So that birth parents and relatives can have someone who believes that the gospel reconciles believes that we've been given a ministry of reconciliation and so families can be restored and made whole because of the faith and the prayer and the love that the foster family gave. Spirit, we thank you for helping understand Jesus' teachings. These are words of life. And Lord, would we, like this man, hear the words, go and do likewise. 
Not because if we don't, you're gonna get mad. Not because if we don't meet a quota or give a percentage of our money, you'll be disappointed, but because faith is about following the compassionate one and being in the Father's presence, doing the things that the Father does. And so help us, Lord, we need you. We need you.